Welcome back to Unprecedential, AEI's podcast on American constitutionalism. I'm Adam White. In the last two decades, no issue in governance has more reliably sparked political warfare than judicial appointments, and especially Supreme Court appointments. For all of the controversies in modern politics, we know there are going to be judicial nominations, and we know they're going to be controversial. And in recent years, there have been calls for reform of the process, for reform of the court itself, in ways that might either lower the political heat or further inflame it. To discuss these issues today, I'm so glad to be joined by my friend Ilya Shapiro. Ilya is director of the Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies, where he oversees both the Cato Institute's involvement in Supreme Court litigation, where Ilya likes to point out they have a pretty phenomenal record of success in their amicus briefs. At least better than our principal rival, the U.S. government. So I'm happy with that. (laughs) Do they consider you their principal rival? I don't know. I don't know. You'll, you'll have to ask my law school classmate acting Solicitor General Jeff Wall. Right. Well, hopefully we'll get him on sometime, too. In addition to overseeing the Supreme Court litigation, Ilya also is the publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review, which is a really indispensable annual scholarly look at the work of the Supreme Court. And I suppose the new issue is due out next month on Constitution Day. That's right. And I'm happy now being the publisher rather than the editor in chief, which gives a little more laxity to my August. Well, when Ilya is not running the Cato Institute's amicus briefs and, and Supreme Court review, he's writing. And in particular, he's just published a new book. It's titled Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court. It's published by Regnery Gateway. And so that's what we're here to discuss today is the past, present and future of judicial nominations. Ilya, thanks for joining us. Great to be on and an honor and a pleasure. I think it's safe to say that the political heat has turned up exponentially on judicial nominations over the last 40 years. And there's arguments about where that starts, but maybe we'll get to that later. Ilya, I'm curious, when you see so much attention being paid to Supreme Court nominations and so much controversy in the fight to get people confirmed to the Supreme Court, is this amount of controversy, this amount of attention, a good thing or a bad thing? Well, the answer is both or yes. It's good because judges matter. The issues that not just the Supreme Court, but the lower court judges decide all the time matter to real people in their real lives, whether with regard to civil disputes or the functioning of government or criminal justice, all these sorts of issues matter. And so the types of people that are appointed to make those decisions matter as well. And it's, it's good to see that voters are, are paying attention. On the other hand, it's a signal that the courts are too important because after all, the controversies in our public life, the real clashes and resolution of different policy views or or cultures or values should be taking place by our elected representatives in our state legislatures and Congress. And the fact that we have more protests outside the Supreme Court than outside the Capitol is an indication that something is off kilter. And I think that's because... In a zero-sum game, there's only a set number of seats, whether the Supreme Court or the lower courts. When we have such divergent interpretive theories that map onto partisan preferences or the party of the president doing the nomination, at a time when the parties are so ideologically sorted, that means that something's wrong. I mean, we shouldn't have such divergent views on what the Constitution in its plain text or what statutes mean. And, And ultimately, that is why we have these battles not because all of a sudden politicians discovered that they have an incentive to 
go on TV and demagogue or that the issues are so much more divisive now than they were 100 years ago or during the Civil War or what have you. That's, that last part is especially interesting, right? The judges in our system have always been important. That's the point. That's why they have independence from direct political oversight. The questions they've decided have always been important. In this podcast, we've had a couple of episodes lately on McCullough versus Maryland since last year was the, was the bicentennial of that decision. Extremely important decision about the scope of both federal and state power. But something's happened in the last 30 years that has turned up the temperature on the judicial fights, maybe 40 years, 50 years. It's turned up the temperature on the political fights to something just astonishing. What's changed in the last half century to suddenly make this a center of, of just outright political warfare? Well, some people point to the 24-7 news cycle or more lately, more recently, social media and the instantaneous and constant flow of news that even if nominations were divisive back in the so-called good old days, you had to wait three or four days to read about it in the paper or get the telegram, what have you. That's different. But I don't think that that's just a, a symptom or a magnification of the real issue, which is, as I said, a culmination of these trends where you have Republican presidents appointing originalists, textualists, so-called conservative judges, Democratic presidents appointing whatever that's not, whether it be living constitutionalists or pragmatists or looking at the purpose of the statute rather than its text, what have you. And not always, but certainly in the culture war issues, the ones that make the front pages, that makes a big difference. It might be surprising to learn that this our current status quo with the most the five most conservative justices being appointed by Republican presidents and the four most liberal or progressive being appointed by the Democrats, that's actually unusual historically. There was a huge mix historically. And so those kinds of alignments, the culminations of those tendencies, again, magnified by instant news and TV and commentary, that's brought us to where we are, where, frankly, the Supreme Court or judicial nominations are part of the same toxic cloud, the same negative public discourse as other aspects of, of political life. Now, the first part of your book is titled A Short History of Confirmation Battles. Maybe you could give us a, a shorter short history, just an <laughs> overview of, of, the, of all this. Well, well, one thing is politics in judicial nominations didn't somehow begin with Merrick Garland or Clarence Thomas or even Robert Bork or Roe v. Wade, whatever you want to point to. George Washington has one of his nominees rejected. In the 19th century, half the presidents or more had someone rejected. John Tyler, I think it took him six different nominations to seat one justice. He was kind of politically homeless for a while. Over the the grand course of American history, only about three quarters of justices were confirmed. You know, we had this topsy-turvy world. The criteria were somewhat different originally. You had to make account for more regional balance and kind of senatorial prerogative a little bit more perhaps than, than ideology. But by the time we come to the turn of the 20th century, Teddy Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, presidents going forward looked at the quote unquote real politics. Forget their party label or their region or trying to placate this or that interest. Are they really going to be trust busters? Are they progressives? Are they classical liberals? Are they whatever the particular president cares about? And even then, the presidents weren't necessarily accurate. You know, it's not a recent phenomenon with the Republican presidents misfiring with David Souter or Bill Brennan or what have you. Woodrow Wilson, right? Whatever you think of him, he managed to nominate social crusading 
Louis Brandeis, who I would argue back in 1916, had a more controversial hearing and confirmation process than any of the modern ones, but also McReynolds, right? This huge anti-Semite, racist, didn't like smokers and drinkers, pissed off, I can say that, a lot of his colleagues, and then kind of one you know, lower key nobody. So there's, in a certain sense, there's nothing new under the sun. You mentioned the Brandeis nomination. His is particularly noteworthy on the arc of history because it's the first, if I remember correctly, that actually was the subject of a hearing at all. Is that right? That's right. 1916 was the first ever hearing. Now, Brandeis himself did not testify. That was seen as unseemly. But there were many days of hearings by his supporters and opponents because he was a crusading social reformer, also the first Jewish nominee. So before we had the Brandeis nomination, what did a Supreme Court nomination look like? Did they just pick a a name and then the, the whole Senate voted? I mean, how did this work? There were a number of confirmations where the nominee didn't know that he had been even selected or confirmed. In fact, several who learned that they had been confirmed declined the so-called honor because they didn't want to ride circuit or it was seen as less prestigious. John Quincy Adams was confirmed and declined because he saw a future in politics, which he did. He later became, of course, president. But it depended. Some, Some took a little while. It depended whether the Senate was in recess. They took longer recesses in those days. But certainly we had plenty of nominees who were either in the early days rejected or I love this euphemism, postponed indefinitely. What happened to Merrick Garland was not unprecedented and otherwise. Well, we'll get to that in just a little bit. But just so the, our audience knows, the politics of judicial appointments at the outset of our, of our history, I mean, you have to keep in mind just the, the political stature of the court or the, or the lack of, of stature, right? If I remember correctly, our first chief justice left the Supreme Court to run for governor of New York. I think Washington tried to get him to come back at one point as chief justice. And John Jay said, no, I won't do it. The court is, is I can't remember his exact words, but he says something to the effect of this court has such, it's such an insignificant body. It's just not worth the trouble. You have others who were called to serve. Adams picks Marshall as chief justice because he himself is having so much trouble filling that seat and so on. It's only over time that the Supreme Court, I suppose because of Marshall, begins to take on much greater weight and stature and becomes the kind of thing that people, it's not that they want to avoid getting on it, it's that they want to get on it. That's exactly right. I mean, the court was housed for for that matter until until the 30s. The court was housed in a basement in the Senate, didn't have its own majestic building that we've now gotten used to. And it was seen, along with the literal circuit riding, you're on a horse going to sometimes these uh, you know, very rugged Western territories, you know, let alone the lower courts. For that matter, uh, some people preferred to stay in the lower courts because then that's where their social networks were. They could be the, the grand poobah locally rather than going to Washington to, who knows, rule on when they would get certain cases. As the kind of republic formed and the, the early party formations It could ruin your political aspirations, your legal practice, what have you. Between Andrew Jackson and Abraham Lincoln, for example, only eight of 21 nominees were confirmed. So there's a lot of rough and tumble in the early days and coming right up until what I consider to be the modern age, which is really the LBJ kind of Nixon era. You and I have known each other for a long time, and we've been talking about Supreme Court nominations probably that entire time. This is a subject you've been monitoring and studying long, long before you wrote this book. As you retrace the history for this book, were there any sort of new facts that surprised you? What was the most surprising or interesting part of writing this history? I guess learning about the criteria that different presidents applied and the misfires. 
They didn't think ideologically in the conventional sense. They didn't think about jurisprudence. What is this justice going to think about the Commerce Clause? Or, I mean, they, they had their parochial concerns, having legal tender, you know, having, having greenbacks as legal tender, for example, was one of, one of Lincoln's concerns. And he wasn't very good at appointing justices that eventually, you know, after his death, were, were ruling on, on that question. Or the Bank of the United States. I mean, some of these early questions, or later on, for that matter, presidents, senators, for that matter, have very short-term political horizons. And so we talk about Eisenhower, who later talked about Bill Brennan and Earl Warren being his two colossal mistakes. Well, Brennan, at least, served his purpose. He was a recess appointee. Talk about election year vacancies. He had a vacancy to fill in October, a month before the the re-election campaign, 1956, and took Bill Brennan from New Jersey, a known liberal. This was not some sort of stealth nominee because he wanted to shore up support in the metropolitan Northeast. Now, how he would rule later should not have come as a surprise, even if Ike didn't particularly like that. And you had presidents like that all down the board. FDR's court packing scheme, we think we know a lot about that. Well, just after being reelected in a landslide in 1936, this was the as goes Maine, so goes Vermont election where FDR won all but those two states. A year later, not having had the opportunity to fill any Supreme Court seats, being frustrated at his New Deal programs being thwarted by the old men on the court, proposes this court packing scheme, hugely unpopular. His vice president ends up running against him. The chief justice testifies against him. And the Democrats lose 80 seats in the House and eight in the Senate, even though Roosevelt ends up getting reelected, but packs the court through natural purposes, maintaining political power. Four years later, he's made eight appointments. So all of these quirks, you know, its history did not start with Robert Bork and controversies did not start with Roe v. Wade. Now, the way you describe the appointment process, the selection process is, is very interesting. Presidents picking Supreme Court justices for reasons having more to do with politics than, than with how they would interpret the law and the Senate handling them accordingly. What does this tell us, if anything, about the way that earlier generations saw the court itself? Should we draw any any inferences from this, or is it just chalk it up to it's always been politics? Well, it was politics kind of at the highest levels, behind closed doors and between the, the White House and the Senate. But it didn't necessarily make, make it to be part of political campaigns. I don't think anybody in the election of 1852 was campaigning, well, we need to elect, I guess, Buchanan, because he'll appoint the right kind of nominees. That really wasn't, wasn't part of it. So making it into a larger scale political debate, that's fairly modern indeed. And, and as I said, when FDR tried to make it into a big political thing, he failed. It was unripe. People didn't see the court as, as playing that kind of role. And that's really a modern development with the Warren court, the, the impeach Earl Warren signs, Brown versus Board of Education would segregate the battle over segregation and desegregation, as well as the criminal justice revolution under the Warren court. Again, this is before we get to abortion and, and Roe v. Wade and anything else in the last couple of decades. But that's, that's when it became a real well, nominations in the Supreme Court itself became a real popular political item. Perhaps the first president who we think of as having brought the court into, Supreme, into presidential politics would have been Lincoln, right? So much of his reinvigoration of his own political career was in the aftermath of Dred Scott. He talked about it in speeches, talked about it in his first inaugural. But then again, who knows to what extent earlier presidents and their, their sort of surrogate campaigns made the court an issue or not. That would be an, an interesting book of its own. But let's focus on your book some more. 
So there is this turning point in the 20th century. Where would you trace sort of the, the, the pivotal moment? Is it Bork? Is it something earlier than Bork? How should we sort of mark the lines from one era to the next? Well, in, in my book, I, I delineate the modern era as starting with 1968, as so much of American culture and politics kind of turns on that pivotal year. That was the year that LBJ nominated Justice Abe Fortas to be Chief Justice when Earl Warren announced that he was going to retire, and that ran into a, a buzzsaw. There were ethical issues, there were bipartisan problems with a host of things. I don't think it was necessarily that it was a presidential election year, although LBJ's fortunes, of course, being a self-pronounced lame duck, did not help that process. And ultimately, you know, Nixon didn't affirmatively run on, you know, I should be the one appointing the, the new chief justice, although that's what ended up happening. But, you know, running on law and order, that was part and parcel of running against the, the war in court, really. And so that's when outside interest groups really ramped up their, their advertising and playing a role in that discussion. You know, that, that's sort of where the, the modern, I guess, political debates over nominations, I, I think, started. Although the currents, as I described, these tendencies of the divergent interpretive theories that eventually, as the parties were sorting themselves out ide- ideologically, that started earlier, probably with the Constitutional Revolution of 1937, where rights were bifurcated. Some rights are more equal than others. The Caroline Products case in 1937, and also the power side where the, the, the New Deal was allowed to go through without constitutional amendment, giving novel powers to the federal government. That's really, I think, where we see divergence in interpretive theory. Before that, we saw inklings of this in terms of trust busting and, and debates over antitrust. And here's a curious, you asked about curious stories or footnotes. Teddy Roosevelt, who appointed Oliver Wendell Holmes, otherwise should have been very happy with Holmes's progressivism and deferring to the, the populist moment and what have you, but also said that he's seen more spine in a banana because of one particular antitrust case that he really just didn't, didn't like Holmes about. But so again, I mean, there, there's currents and trends and tendencies with jurisprudence, but in terms of the political debates over nominations, I, I think uh, you know, 1968 is about as good a, a moment as ever. And I don't say Roe v. Wade, by the way, because that took on more significance really with Robert Bork you know, yeah. over a decade after the Roe decision. John Paul Stevens was the first Supreme Court nominee after Roe and was not asked any questions about it. It's remarkable. 68 really does deserve more attention, I think, in, in these histories. And I'm glad you've, you've focused on it. There's so many, I mean, obviously these days, we oftentimes we draw political comparisons between 68 and, and our own time. But 68 had huge fights over the outgoing Johnson administration's attempted nominations, Chief Justice Warren trying to, as you said, see his colleague Abe Fortas succeed him, the Senate refusing to vote in an election year on a president's nominee. You have the fights over the law and order campaigns, the law and order issues that Nixon has raised, and questions about the D.C. Circuit, the D.C. Circuit judges. Nixon ends up picking Warren Burger in part because of the way he performed on the D.C. Circuit, pushing back against the pro-criminal rights views of, of Skelly Wright and David Bazelon and others. But Bork's nomination really does seem to be the moment where everything explodes into public view. That nomination has been discussed over and over and over again. How do you tend to think of what happened in, in that nomination? How should we understand it in hindsight? Democrats brought their A-game on the attack, and Republicans weren't ready for it. There's some curious backstory, actually. The year before, 1986, 
Justice Scalia sailed through unanimously. This is remarkable to think of in these days, but unanimously. The fact that he was the first Italian-American, that was talk about identity politics. That was a huge deal. He had positive statements from Italian-American Democratic politicians all over the country of every sort. Also, he was paired with Bill Rehnquist, who was being elevated to chief justice, ran into what at the time was considered significant controversy. Now, I think the final vote was uh, 66, 34, 32, something like that. That was considered a big deal. The first time that the ACLU ever came out against a nominee was was Rehnquist for his elevation to, to chief justice. But then later in the year, the Republicans lost the Senate. So not only was Bork more controversial than Scalia, less affable, you know, didn't have the, you know, the, the identity politics aspect, wasn't paired with someone more controversial, but the Democrats were controlling the Senate. And so even though new Judiciary Committee Chairman Joe Biden told Reagan late in after the 86 election that if someone like Scalia were nominated, then he'd probably get through fairly easily. But then campaigning for president, hearing for interest groups. When Lewis Powell announced his retirement, he advised Reagan that Bork simply, there'd be trouble. And indeed there was. 45 minutes after the nomination came out, July 1st, 1987, Senator Ted Kennedy of Massachusetts went on the Senate floor and gave a barn burner of a speech saying that if Bork is confirmed, or rather Roberts Bork's America consists of the most horrible parade of horribles imaginable. And that they were off and running, People for the American Way, famous commercial with Gregory Peck, demagoguing on the professional factors. This was not really going after Bork's sexual history or something, although people did try to go into his rental records of his movies to see if he was viewing anything salacious. Just attacking everything from his conception of rights to the Ninth Amendment to the scope of federal power, privacy, abortion, all of these different things. And Republicans, curiously, were running from the playbook that he's not really a conservative or a liberal. He's just a down-the-middle kind of judge, just like Lewis Powell, who was one of the swing votes for a long time, and really did not have kind of a rapid response ready. Nor, by the way, Bork himself is partly to blame, did not take coaching from the White House or Justice Department advisors. Unlike the current playbook, where you're taught to say a lot without saying very much, to talk a lot without saying very much. Bork had these long, thorough academic answers that were both threw up lots of other meat to attack at that point, but also kind of put off the senators with this kind of turgid approach to things. And so it was kind of a confluence of various factors, but this was definitely the, the, the first of the kind of attack, counterattack model that we're now used to. It's such a fascinating contrast between those two justices. Like you said, Scalia had some political advantages, including being the first Italian-American appointed to the court. And Scalia, of course, just had a, a certain charm, a political charm. You watch the video, the pictures from that hearing. Smoking as he's, a pipe the whole time. Yeah, and, and smiling, and smiling. And I think that's key, right, is that, that Bork, for reasons some not his fault, and maybe some his fault, he just didn't come across well on television. He didn't come across well to the senators. So I guess that's part of it. And of course, like you said, there was just the change in control of the Senate going into to 87. But these are still two nominations of two judges who are very similar jurisprudentially. They both have been academics who had written a lot. I guess Bork had a little bit of extra baggage since he had been involved in Nixon's Saturday Night Massacre, getting rid of the- Surprisingly of the... little discussion of that, frankly. Oh, really? 
Yeah. I mean, there, so, there was some, some questioning of that, but definitely overwhelmed by some of the more substantive legal issues. Yeah. So there's differences between the two and you can add them up, but it still seems disproportionate to the vast difference in the politics surrounding the Scalia nomination and the Bork nomination. I suppose part of it was that you're replacing Powell, right? So whereas Scalia was filling the seat, I mean, in effect, that Berger had filled because Rehnquist moved over to the chief justice, you had a conservative replacing a conservative. Powell was a conservative, but not not as clearly sort of ideologically conservative as, as Berger was. You saw the court sort of hanging in the balance. So maybe I suppose that's what spurred Kennedy and the others to just go all out against the Bork nomination? All of those factors. I mean, who's in control is, I mean, it seems like a banal point, but the debate that we're having now, if there's a vacancy on the court, can Trump fill it versus in 2016? Well, look, whether the Senate is aligned with the White House is hugely important historically, whether in election years or otherwise, just historically overall, when the Senate is controlled by the same party as the White House, about 90% of nominees were confirmed. When the Senate is opposite to the White House, 60%. And then you add in the election year, that's going to heighten the tensions. Shifting the court, again, I mean, it seems like an obvious point, hugely important. There's a reason why Brett Kavanaugh replacing Anthony Kennedy, similar kind of situation to Bork replacing Powell, generated such a firestorm. So these things can't be overlooked. The books that were written about the court in that era, that they have really indicative titles. Around the time of the, I guess, just after the Bork nomination, you get David Savage writing a book called Turning Right, you know, the court turning right. And then a few years later, right after Planned Parenthood versus Casey, James Simon writes a book called The Center Holds. And so this really is the narrative of the court, the court in the balance, possibly moving to the right, but then not. It's easy to jump from the Bork nomination to the Justice Thomas nomination, which obviously becomes very controversial, but for reasons the the allegations of Anita Hill that you can sort of put in their own separate box, maybe, and say, well, this was not about ideology. This was about personal accusations. I mean, that's, that's how some would characterize it. Maybe not the right way to characterize it. But setting that aside for a moment, you had in the middle of the Souter nomination, which was itself extremely highly controverted at the time, right? It was until he testified. Yeah. So there were concerns you know, from the beginning, the George H.W. Bush White House, they wanted a conservative, but a stealth conservative who couldn't be attacked the way that Bork had been. And Souter had a very thin record. I mean, he had a great resume. He had been attorney general and Supreme Court justice in New Hampshire, well-connected. You know, John Sununu was, was, was pushing him, but not really significant opinions one way or another. You couldn't tell where he was going. And there was a divide within the White House, whether to go for him or Edith Jones was the runner-up. Can you imagine if all these uh, years had been her instead of, instead of Souter? And they went with him. And so the, the left attacked him the same way they did Bork. Yeah. Now, they didn't have as much content to attack. So they thought, well, what we don't know is really, you know, we really fear that. And then he began testifying. And all of a sudden, most Democrats thought, oh, well, we have nothing to worry about with this guy. And Republicans were like, well, that's not what I expected to hear in response to the answer. So ultimately, the vote on him was 90 to 9, right? Kennedy still voted against him. There were still like kind of the, the most left-wing Democrats did, but 90 to 9, ultimately. Yeah. And then, and then you got Thomas a year later. So there's the Bork, Souter, Thomas nominations, which are fought very, very aggressively by Democrats. The two that follow then, Breyer and Ginsburg, you don't see the same dynamic. Republicans really held their fire 
by and large on those two. In fact, if I remember correctly, didn't Orrin Hatch sort of play a role of a sort in the Ginsburg nomination, or at least he signaled to President Clinton early on that it would be an acceptable nomination? That's right. I mean, again, Democrats were still controlling the Senate, which you know, I can't overstate that point. That's important. So what could Republicans have done, really? The filibuster was kind of seen as beyond the pale. It's not something that one does unless there's some ethical or qualification concern like arose with Fortas. You know, Clinton tried hard. He sort of settled both times. The first time he wanted a politician. He asked Mario Cuomo. He asked Bruce Babbitt, several cabinet secretaries, George Mitchell, the Senate majority leader who wanted to stay to uh, help him with health care reform, Hillary care and, and, and all that finally ended up going with Ginsburg. Interviewed Breyer first, and they didn't get along in part because Breyer had had a bicycle accident and was really kind of in pain during the interview. But the second time, again, it was like a replay and finally settled for Breyer in part because Breyer had been Kennedy's chief counsel and Kennedy was the Judiciary Committee chairman and sort of was known as an administrative law guy and and Hatch and the other Republicans just realized there was no more moderate person, no Tony Kennedy waiting in the wings. I mean, this was about as good as it was going to get. And so And so those went through. But I should mention, right before Ginsburg and Breyer, in that election year that elected Clinton, that was probably the first or the only time in modern history where the Democrats or the Democratic presidential nominee ran on the court. This was right after Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And Clinton actually did make the Supreme Court into a bit of an issue, which we hadn't seen until now. You know, Hillary didn't and and everyone in, in, in between. And also that year, 1992, in June, Joe Biden, again, he pops up. It's kind of interesting in this history because he was Judiciary Committee chairman because he was in the Senate for 36 years. Says if there's another vacancy, then President Bush should not fill it. The Senate should not take it up. This will be bad for all institutions involved. And that, of course, footage from C-SPAN was dug up 24 years later in 2016 during that vacancy debate and called the Biden rule. And by the way, this so-called Biden rule was affirmed by Chuck Schumer, now the minority leader, in 2007, which wasn't an election year, but it was about a year and a half before the end of George W. Bush's term. So these things, again, history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it definitely rhymes. Let's skip ahead a little bit and just get right to the Garland nomination, since that's what these are all pointing to. Justice Scalia passes away. Senate Republicans announce very quickly that they will not vote on a nominee to succeed Justice Scalia before the election. This is all in February of 2016. President Obama nominates Merrick Garland, chief judge of the D.C. Circuit, whose name had floated over and over again in earlier years. Anytime there was a vacancy on the Supreme Court, people would say, President Obama ought to take a centrist like Merrick Garland. Well, then President Obama does nominate Merrick Garland, and the Senate Republicans don't vote. This is decried then and is still decried, and really, I think for a long time, as a violation of precedent, an escalation of the judicial nomination wars. How do you think of the Garland nomination? What lessons should we draw from it? Well, we can't take it in a vacuum or just going from Thomas, the last you know, really controversial one, although there was an attempted filibuster of Alito, which was unprecedented right. at the time. And Biden, Clinton, Schumer, Obama all voted to sustain that, that filibuster. It got about 25 votes, about half the Democratic caucus. But you can't just skip from Thomas directly to Garland, because there is a lot of ratcheting of tensions going on on judicial nominations, as much or more in the lower courts. I start talking about lower court nominees in my book, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations in the Politics of America's Highest Court. In the late Reagan, a little bit where the, the Democrats were kind of previewing what they were going to do to Bork, but really with Bush one and especially Clinton and this escalation of tensions and 
deciding, you know, slow walking nominees, obstructing them in the various ways, different ways of treating the blue slip. Now, it's, it's, it's a myth that the blue slip was an absolute block, the senatorial prerogative and, and, and what have you. We can go into some of these arcane parliamentary procedures if, if you want. But ultimately, in 2003, Harry Reid, when the Democrats had a minority, but, but he led a, a filibuster, a partisan filibuster for the first time of lower court nominees. Ten years later, when the Democrats had the majority, he got rid of the filibuster, the original nuclear option for lower court and executive branch nominees. And Mitch McConnell at the time said, you know, what goes around comes around. You, you might regret this. And here we are three years later with, I'll, I'll get back to McGarland in a second, but ultimately Mitch McConnell imposes what I like to call the thermonuclear option, getting rid of the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees to seat Gorsuch. But with Garland in particular, again, this is not unprecedented. It's not unprecedented to take up a nominee. It's not denying the presidential prerogative to make a nomination. He, you know, Obama made that nomination. And in fact, the last time the Senate controlled by the opposite party confirmed a nominee to a vacancy arising in that presidential election year was 1888. You know, it was even hard for LBJ in 1968 when his own party controlled the Senate. But when the opposite party did, I mean, that was really, really hard to do. So it's not unprecedented. Again, it's a ratcheting up of tensions, a pure political play, a big gamble by Mitch McConnell. I mean, it was the same day that we all learned of Scalia's passing that without consulting his caucus, he announced that there would be no hearings and no vote. And equally remarkably, the Republican caucus held together. There were some blips that, you know, maybe they ought to have hearings or whatever. But at the end of the day, they held together and that logjam held. And on Election Day, not only did that help the Republican nominee, Donald Trump, uh, unlikely nominee, get elected in large part because enough swing voters in those key states in Michigan and Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, cared about this issue with the looming vacancy. But also the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, Chuck Grassley, against whom millions were spent specifically on this blockade issue, won going away from your home state of Iowa, nearly 25 points. His biggest victory, I think, since his second one or or what have you. Iowa became less of a swing state than Texas. Again, it's, it's a pure political argument. It's not that there's any constitutional standard being violated. There's no question of legality. It's, again, when the opposite party controls in an election year, very difficult to get anyone confirmed. And Obama tried. He went for basically the most compromised, the most moderate Democratic pick that he could go with. And and, and an older one as well. Garland was 63. We haven't had a nominee over 55 confirmed other than Ginsburg since Lewis Powell in 1971. So Obama tried but still, the Republicans, remarkably, I mean, you, you never get rich betting on the spines and the, on the steel and the spines of Republican senators. And they held together and, and, and it is what it is. And that was, again, a further ratcheting up of the tension, which was then furthered again when Mitch McConnell got rid of the filibuster for the Supreme Court. And by the way, I don't think the Democrats did themselves any favors because if they had kept their powder dry and not forced the Republicans' hand on Gorsuch, then no way would have the more moderate or institutionalist Republican senators gone along with removing the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees to seat Kavanaugh instead of Kennedy. You mentioned my home state of Iowa and Senator Grassley. I do remember leaving the Des Moines airport at some point in 2016, I went back to give a talk in Iowa on some of these, these issues. And I remember driving away from the Des Moines airport and seeing a billboard right there. I can't remember which group it was really criticizing. It was one of the national groups that was in favor of the Garland nomination and, and blasting Chuck Grassley for, for not moving forward. And like you said, Grassley, he didn't move on it. 
he certainly wasn't voted out of office. He was quite the opposite. He was brought back in on a wave. That election night, by the way, I happened to be at the Des Moines Marriott. I was giving a talk at Drake the next day, and that, that's where I was, and happened to be the same hotel as the state GOP victory party, where I just walked in, didn't know anybody, and kind of went back to my room to have like multiple screens and see this crazy election going on. <laughs> the, the history that you traced out during the Bush years of the lower courts, that, that is just so important. I was in law school at the time and a fan of a lot of, well, all of George W. Bush's nominees. I remember seeing judges like Bill Pryor and Kavanaugh for the D.C. Circuit and others being filibustered. And I was so bothered by it that I set out to write my third year paper on why the Senate had a constitutional duty to vote for every judicial nomination that they had to vote. George W. Bush said that the Constitution required the Senate to give each nominee an up or down vote. It didn't take me very long to realize that 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 was wrong. And I wound up writing my third year paper on why the Senate didn't have to vote on judicial nominations, a paper that nobody cared about for that moment until, I guess, about five seconds after the passing of Justice Scalia. It always seemed to me very cut and dry as a matter of law, as a matter of history, that the Senate just didn't have to vote. The obligation was on the president to bring senators over the line and not for the senators to muster a majority sufficient to block a nomination. That said, of course, there are prudential judgments. I do wonder about the Garland nomination. In the end, I still think Republicans did the right thing. I think that it was within their power to not vote on him, to not have hearings and to justify it as a matter of politics, bring it to the voters. It did inflame a lot on the other side. And I think, well, to the extent that Democrats say they want to restructure the court, we'll get to that. They trace it back to, in part, to the Garland nomination. Maybe that's just rhetoric, maybe not. Although if you look at their platform, they're very, I I thought it was clever what they did. They talked about adding judgeships which yeah. should be added. I mean, we have, it's been 30 years and there's lots of judicial emergencies all over the place. Only five of the judgeships that the judicial conference proposes are even in the circuit courts anyway. So these are district judgeships trying to deal with overflowing dockets. So that, I'm surprised, frankly, that the Republicans haven't taken that up, or at least McConnell didn't while the Senate, while they had both houses first two years of the Trump administration. But, but anyway, I used to think that all senators should vote against nominees who weren't being fully candid as then Professor Elena Kagan wrote in a Law Review article, right? And then by the time she was herself in the hot seat, she realized why nominees were were being cagey. They're just responding to the incentives that they have. Yeah. I was just going to say earlier that I think to do it over again, if there's one thing I wish the Republicans would have done differently is I wish they would have framed their argument differently. By framing it in sort of neutral terms of judicial Supreme Court vacancies during an election year, really open themselves up to the charge of hypocrisy that they'll, they'll face if a seat does open up between now and the election. I guess you could say that's just politics, but I wish they would have just been blunter in what they had been doing. But I think there were some of these arguments made, but it's hard to make kind of a, a top line point other than, you know, election year. I mean, really, I mean, I, I saw lots of this and I myself contributed to, to these debates that it's significant that Republicans had just been elected to take the Senate in 2014, two years after Obama had been reelected. So this was kind of the decider, the rubber match of of, of that politics, the opposing parties issue, and the shift in the court, you know, just saying, I really don't think that if it had been Ginsburg who passed, that they would have taken that position. I think it would have been harder to sustain. I think if it had been Garland for Ginsburg, it would have gone through. So let's talk about some of the debates that are happening now, debates about changing the process or changing the court itself. At the end of your book, you grapple with questions about 
the justice's tenure? Should they be given term limits? Why don't you tell us about this debate and where you come down on it? First, there's kind of lessons learned. Where where are we? And it's what we the sorts of things that we've been talking about. How fights are now driven by judicial philosophy, even though politics has always been a, a part of the process. Fighting over judicial philosophy is a little different than than what the fights were over the political fights before. Hearings have become kabuki theater. In fact, one of the things I come down on is that I think the the costs to having these public hearings is now greater than the benefit we get educational or otherwise, particularly with these long paper trails that people have instantly accessible on the on the internet, certainly for any sensitive things, ethical things or whatever, you have that in closed session anyway. But what we get in these public sessions really is both sides trying to get gotcha moments of various kinds with protests, and it's a circus that really demeans everyone involved. Let me say one thing about that. One thing that really, really worries me, we saw in the last nominations, was the fact that in the Kavanaugh hearing, the Kavanaugh nomination, The real action started after the initial hearing, right? There had been just the whole set of normal hearings. I was actually lucky to get to testify on the last day, that last day where nobody pays attention and even the protesters had gotten bored. It wasn't until after that that the fire. I would have protested you if you'd asked me. Oh, I should have asked. I mean, your stance on Chevron, please. Well, that's a whole other podcast. (laughs) But I do worry that now the, the, the hearings will be even more kabuki theater than before in that the real hearings will start after the initial hearings, that the first hearings will become almost pro forma, and then the other side will start dropping bombs. That actually really, really worries me. And and I was very worried about how it played out in the Kavanaugh process. You might be misremembering a little bit, because even the first, you know, before anybody had heard of Christine Blasey Ford, Mm -hmm. remember there was the rolling filibuster to open and this this, debate about document production and redaction and privilege and uh, Cory Booker's Spartacus moment and Kamala Harris's cryptic questioning about partners in, in an obscure law firm. There was that. I mean, it, it obviously was overshadowed by what happened later, yeah. but they, they were in the minority and those of them who were running for president needed their sound bites. And everybody else just try to find something, anything that would stick to the wall. Yeah, well, that, that is a fair point. I think though that, and I, I'm, I'll take pride in one of the very few predictions I've ever gotten correct in my career, telling people in advance that the hearings itself would be so well-managed by Chairman Grassley. He would have everything so buttoned down. And you saw how he reacted during the Spartacus moment and everything. He really was unflinching that the only way that Democrats could really turn things on their ear would be to blow things up after we got through that. And that actually happened. And I really worry that that is going to be the the model for future nominations. But you're right. I shouldn't shouldn't soft-pedal what really was a pretty tough hearing before you got to the, the Ford allegations. I interrupted you in the middle of no, lessons no, I mean, learned. What, what else? The, the final lesson is that these political battles are unavoidable because the court rules on so many controversies. I mean, there's something odd. I mean, I, I don't think this happens in Canada or Germany or Australia or pick whatever country you want to com- compare it to, that the most controversial issues in American political life, when you think about it, you know, gun control, gay marriage, education, immigration, voting rights, campaign finance. You know, I've been a court watcher, a professional court watcher, so to speak, for you know 13 years now. I've been at Cato almost. And every issue, every major political controversy ends up at the Supreme Court. It's bizarre. And that's why there are going to be these battles, because what these people decide matters. And again, there's a complicated story for, for why this is. It's in part because we've centralized power. And so Washington makes so many decisions for such a diverse, pluralistic society. In part, it's because the court over decades has allowed power to flow even within Washington to the executive branch of the administrative agencies, which of course can't be lobbied or voted out. They can only be sued. And so 
courts decide those issues. But anyway, these reform proposals, which are all, you know, in good faith and trying to turn down the heat, whether by expanding the court, allowing more voices, court packing just in itself, I think this is one of the very few, possibly the only thing I agree with Bernie Sanders on. You know, he he came out against court packing. He said, look, this is crazy. And, you know, you add two, then they'll add two. In 50 years, we're going to have 87 justices. It's crazy. Yeah. I'm not going to do the Brooklyn accent. But and, <laughs> and I think that's right. Then there's like kind of modified court packing where you have it to uh, 15 justices, five of whom are explicitly Republican, five are explicitly Democrat. And then those 10 so-called partisan justices have to unanimously agree on five others. How you are supposed to depoliticize an institution where two-thirds of the judges now have explicit partisan letters attached to their names, you know, I think, again, too clever by half. Term limits is really the reform that gets talked about and has been talked about, well, from the very beginning. There was a debate between Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton on this question and the merits of life tenure for independence and what have you. And it's understandably arguments over term limits really heat up when there hasn't been a lot of turnover on the court for a while as the average age creeps up. So for example, between there were no vacancies between 1994 when Breyer was confirmed and 2005 when Justice O'Connor announced her retirement. Breyer was the junior justice having to answer the door in conference for 11 years. That's a, that's a record. And so people started talking about term limits. Steve Calabresi, one of the co-founders of the Federalist Society, professor at Northwestern Law School, and Jim Lundgren, his faculty colleague, came out with a definitive argument for 18-year term limits. Why 18? Because there's nine justices. You have a vacancy every two years. Every presidential term on the, in the non-election years gets appointments, so you get no more, no less than two per term, unless there's a death or an early retirement. That's if, a pretty big if. It's a pretty big if, but you know there, there's less randomness than the current situation. We're, we're all in this macabre watch for Ruth Bader Ginsburg's health and what have you. I was pretty much convinced by that just because I think it would instill greater public confidence in the court, but only for that public confidence rationale, not because it would shuffle the ideology on the court. In fact, scholars have done this going back 50, 60 years. Imagine that in 1950 or 1970, those 18-year term limits had been in place. The ideological balance of the court, give or take a year here or there, would have been about the same as it turned out to be. And we wouldn't even have necessarily younger justices on average, because if you have an 18-year limit, then all of a sudden people in their 60s become plausible candidates again. So term limits, sure, worth discussing, but it would take a constitutional amendment. And I think there's more important things to spend that kind of political capital on. You made a point a little bit ago, maybe we'll return to that and and finish with it, this point that Supreme Court nominations are so explosive because the court looms so heavily in our politics. The decisions that they make have such immense ramifications for the governance in America. There's a point that Justice Scalia made maybe better than anybody in his dissent in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, right after the Thomas nomination, where Justice Scalia says, you know, my colleagues on the court worry that the the nomination process is getting too heated. Well, decisions like this, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, will only make it that much worse because it'll be the one chance where people, the people have the opportunity to weigh in on these issues. And so, of course, if the court is going to make value judgments, then the people should ask these questions and pelt nominees with questions or the senators should pelt them with these questions. You know, a little while ago, you you joked with me about Chevron deference. And that, that is one of these issues where you and I just fundamentally disagree where I'm, I favor much more deference than you do in terms of the courts to the executive branch. I, I'm like Chevron less and less, but I, I like it more than you do. 
I definitely would advocate for more judicial deference to agencies than you would. And also on constitutional questions, I would favor more judicial deference to the legislative branch in the federal government and the states than, than you would. I think it's fair to say. I group you in, you can quibble with this, but with advocates of judicial engagement, our friends Randy Barnett and Clark Neely and Josh Blackman and others. I'm, sur- I'm, I'm for judicial disengagement to an extent. Where I'm going with this is it worries me that if your approach to constitutionalism and the power of the court were to succeed, it would make the nominations that much more explosive. The sort of the judicial restraint that I like, one of the virtues of it is it would sort of take down the temperature on judicial nominations. Am I being unfair to your your viewpoint on this? Well, I guess you're a big fan of John Roberts then, not too popular in center-right or federal society circles, or any circles for that matter. Nobody really quite trusts him or knows what he's doing with his strategery. But the problem with Chevron deference, which to be clear is a doctrine about deferring to administrative agencies when they're interpreting their operative statute. That is, as long as they do something that's not, quote, arbitrary and capricious, they don't necessarily have to have the right answer. They just have to have a a plausible or a reasonable one. The problem is that Congress has delegated so much to the agencies. If we were in, you know, 1930 world, then I might be with you on the amount of deference that is due the executive branch. But because we have such expansive delegations and agencies are essentially writing the rules by which we live our day-to-day lives, they deserve much more scrutiny. Do they deserve some deference? Sure. If, you know, basically along the lines of what Justice Kagan wrote in the Kaiser opinion that that was reevaluating the our deference, which is the deference owed to agencies when they're reinterpreting their own regulations. If they're acting as experts, meaning as biologists or economists rather than as lawyers, because judges can be as good lawyers as you know IRS lawyers are or EPA lawyers or what have you. If they've done their homework, if there's ambiguity in the statute to begin with, because we're you know there's not supposed to be any 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 discretion, any wiggle room for the agencies to act unless the statute itself is ambiguous. So Justice Kavanaugh keeps making this point, right? There's kind of two sides to the pushback to agency deference. Gorsuch is kind of full throated. We shouldn't defer. We shouldn't defer. Kavanaugh is well, maybe, and I think Scalia towards the end of his life was this way as well. Maybe we shouldn't defer. Maybe we should defer, but the number of cases where that's even an issue should be much more narrow because judges have to do the hard work of interpreting and constructing what the statutes actually mean. So in practice, there might not be as much difference in in your approach and my approach. Now, when you mentioned judicial engagement, I think for me, at least, that goes far beyond, and indeed the most significant part is beyond these battles over, very technocratic battles over administrative deference. This is about whether to hold legislators or government actors' feet to the constitutional fire. This idea of so-called rational basis review that has that means anything that a government actor does, as long as a judge can conceive of some rational basis for it, rather than putting the burden on the government to justify its imposition or its infringement on an exercise of a particular liberty. Because I think fundamentally, the Constitution doesn't have our government actions under the Constitution don't have a presumption of constitutionality. The government, you know, our Constitution is meant to secure and protect our liberties. And therefore, the government, if it wants to restrict our liberties, needs good reason and says, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm regulating interstate commerce. I'm, 
you know, or I'm acting pursuant to the state police power for the public health and safety. Now, you know, a lot of things, there's no debate, you know, laws against murder or what have you, you lots of criminal laws. But other things, there's, you know, is it just pure rent seeking? Is it pure protectionism? Is it just somebody having some whim not based in any social science, not based in any reason other than, oh, well, that's a plausible guess at how to affect human behavior. Well, no, that's not good enough if you're restricting somebody's individual right. And then the second part of that is the artificial bifurcation of enumerated and unenumerated rights. So for example, I think that my constitutional right to walk down the right side of the street with a red hat on is as strong as my constitutional right to keep and bear arms. The reason why certain rights were enumerated is because they're kind of top of mind or things that were most in concern in 1789, 1791. But when it came time to perfecting the Constitution or applying those rights to the states, recall in 1868, the Reconstruction Amendment enactors didn't just say, oh, yeah, those amendments just apply to the states. They used different language, equal protection, due process, privileges, or immunities. And so protecting a whole class of what we would now understand as natural rights or inalienable rights going back to the Declaration of of Independence. And we can have debates over what those rights are. And that's where the proper debate should be. The proper interpretive theory, what kind of rights do we have? What is the scope of government power? Not judicial modes. Oh, you should be restrained there unless there's something explicit in the Constitution. Or that's too activist. That's an artificial debate. I mean, for, for that matter, activism is a hollow word that just means I disagree with the decision or the judge. So this, you know, restraint, activism, engagement, that's kind of talking around the issues. Let's debate whether someone has a proper theory of interpretation and vote accordingly, whether you're a citizen or a senator. Well, that's an entirely different podcast. I'll look forward to doing that one with you sometime. But I know you're going to be very busy in the next few months talking about this book. And I'm glad to hear it. I hope this book gets a lot of attention. It deserves a lot of attention. Again, for our listeners, the book is titled Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations, and the Politics of America's Highest Court. In this conversation, we've only had a chance to sort of skim across the surface. And so go buy the book, read the book. You'll benefit immensely from it. Ilya, And Adam, if I can say, it's available, of course, for pre-order on Amazon now. The official release is September 22nd. And if anybody does pre-order or or buy the book in stores and you uh, send me proof of purchase, I'm happy to send you in this pandemic virtual time a a signed book plate that you can stick in there in in lieu of an in-person author signing. Oh, with an offer like that, how can anybody turn it down? Ilya, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thanks, as always, to our listeners for tuning in. Please join us again for the next episode of Unprecedential.